0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
1: All of you listening to this podcast are living on the edge with spoilers you just can't ignore. When we first made pods for you none of you trusted us but as you know we made episodes and you listened to them so everyone here trusted us to tell you this episode contains spoilers for Squid Game for the new James Bond 007 picture No Time to Die as well as a whole lot more uh and who knows honestly what else we might talk about so be warned <laughs> Hello, I am Jason Concepcion, and welcome to episode seven of X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. On today's Previously On, uh, we'll talk about the latest Bond film, No Time to Die. In the airlock, we will dive deep into the Netflix sensation Squid Game, and in the end game, we will choose our own deadly game to be a part of. You won't want to miss out, but first, let's say hello to today's co-host, pop culture clairvoyant, the great Rosie Knight. Rosie... What was your favorite children's game?
2: Um, <laughs> I was like
3: thinking a lot about this. I wasn't really like an active kid. So I'm going to say like Duck Hunt because I used to love going duck to my friend's crazy. house and playing Duck Hunt. But because of Squid Games, I will reveal the English or at least London regional it. title for Red Light, Green Light, which is um, What's the Time, Mr. Wolf? So that's What's like the Time, most... Mr. Wolf? Exactly. It's like the most English thing ever. What was your favorite childhood game? Kick the Can?
1: Do you ever play Kick the Can? <laughs> no, but So, Kick Incredible. the Can, uh, it, it figures in, if you want to see a good version of Kick the Can, it is in the Twilight Zone movie from the 80s, uh, directed by John Landis, famous for the deaths of uh, an actor and uh, two child actors on set during a particularly harrowing helicopter scene. But there is a brief snippet of kick the can in there it's kind of like hide and go seek in that uh, one person is it or the person or the jailer sometimes and there is a can or a bottle we use like a two-liter bottle of like Hawaiian punch everyone would go hide right and then the person who's it uh, then has to go around and find people and they have to stay in this like circle around the can and so they would say like uh, tap 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 I see Jason hiding uh, behind a, a tree. And if he sees you, you then have to go stand with him in this like circle around the can. Now, if someone manages to like run up before the person who is it can say, tap, 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 I see so and so, I see Rosie running toward me, and they kick the can before that full statement is uttered, everyone is free. And then the person has to then go. Re- Retrieve the can, return it to the place, and everybody has run away and is hid. It would go on for a long time, but it was very suspenseful. And there was nothing like kicking the can at the last possible moment to free
3: everyone. (laughs) It sounds actually like it would be a very good Squid Game game because it's like suspiciously simple, but actually secretly really intricate.
1: Yes, like we were the 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 fun move would be someone would say tap tap tap. I see so and so and so and so hiding over here, and then a third person would like walk up with them, very chill, like oh, you also got me. You forgot about it, and then they would get to the can and kick it, and everybody would just go crazy and run. (laughs) Um, Okay, let's get to the news and recaps in today's previously on. First up. DC's new Superman, John Kent, this is the child of Clark Kent and Lois Lane, has been announced as bisexual in DC. And this made uh, quite a splash. They announced this on National Coming Out Day, which is great PR. Um, (laughs) And while this is certainly the buzziest of recent diverse representational announcements, this has been going on for a while. Tim Drake, uh, the current Robin... Uh, has been out as bisexual since August. Tom like, Taylor, Dark Knights of Steel, Harlequin. And of course, you know, Young Avengers from mm-hmm. eight or 10 years ago has had uh, characters that were gay and out as gay. Yeah,
3: even like going back to like some of our favorite comics, like the Claremont X-Men stuff, even though there was allegedly an edict at the time where they couldn't G- be gay, Jim Shooter's knows Jim
1: Shooter's, no shooter's gay's edict.
3: notorious edict. But like, you know- uh, mystique and destiny like these right. are things that these stories have been there for like a, a really long time
1: they have been there uh you know i think there were some notable stories from that era and ways that creators got around the mm-hmm. supposed edict which i believe is true i believe that I jim believe shooter it had it true an, i jim i believe that jim shooter had an edict he seemed like that kind of guy <laughs> there's i forget what uh, what uh issue of captain america it is but there's like an issue of captain America where he uh I'm, i might get some of the details wrong but that he meets up again with like an old uh army buddy who has like a best friend that they they live together and mm-hmm. some like something like they aren't allowed to like split their uh assets in some particular way and or one of them gets sick and captain america's like well it's wrong that like these characters can't just hang out together and but it's quite <laughs> clearly coded like as a as a gay relationship yeah so this is great um and for everybody who is mad and slash upset about this you're late you clearly don't read comics because it's been going on for yeah,
3: a yeah and also it's really funny because like Connor Kent like everyone always thought he was gay so I'm sure that they're both gonna be gay soon like Connor <laughs> yeah. Kent's like the number one shipping like gay icon so I thought this was really cool. The art was really nice. The art Uh, was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And Tom Taylor, I think, is doing something really cool. I like seeing John as Superman. I think that's a really interesting choice and good for them.
1: The Tom Taylor statement, uh, quote, Superman's symbol has always stood for hope, for truth, and for justice. Today, the symbol represents something more. Today, more people can see themselves in the most powerful superhero in comics. It's it's great. Um, Also, big news uh, for... Image Heads, for Brian K. Vaughn Heads, for fans of Fiona Staples. Saga, the acclaimed award-winning series, which I love very dearly, will return uh, end of January with issue 55. It's been on hiatus for, I want to say, almost two and a half, mm-hmm. three years now. Uh, that It left us with—this is a spoiler podcast— but one of the more brutal cliffhangers in comics that I can remember— and it's coming back. I can't wait. I love it. I love this comic. If you love family, if you love falling in love, if you want to see one of the most heart-rending depictions of a breakup of two people who go their separate ways and maintain their love for each other, check out Saga. It all happens in space. There's a cat that knows if you're lying. It's great. (laughs)
3: What's like your one, if somebody was like, what's Saga about? What's like your one line, like, pitch line?
1: Man, it's about love in space, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, and the ability of love to transcend really violent disagreements and differences. It's about Mm -hmm. a planet that is at war with its moon. Uh, You know, a highly technological people versus a, a people entrenched in magic. And they disagree on everything. But then two <laughs> different people from uh from those two species fall in love and they have a child. And though it doesn't all work out the way you would want it to, it's just an incredibly engaging story. It's how would you pitch it?
3: Yeah, no, I think that's perfect. I think like it's one of those comics where I used to work in a comic shop in London and I had a lot of friends who were that image era of like twenty twelve to twenty fifteen, yeah. where it was just like the biggest, you had, you know. Uh, wicked and the divine saga yes. obviously walking dead was still at like its peak this was one of those books that you gave to people who don't read right. comic books so that's always yes. my thing is like this is that first book one because fiona's art is like so incredible and i love bkv yeah. but the art is what sells someone who's never read a comic yes. book but it's political it's nuanced it's sweet it's loving it's violent it's scary it's inventive it, it's sexy
1: it's like it's all sexy of those... yeah
3: and it it's it's honestly like one of the biggest kind of cultural phenomenon comics of our time. Like it's Agreed. the one comic that I feel like everyone says you have to read. It's one Eisner's, yeah. it's one Harvey's. I think Fiona might have become the first woman to ever win an Eisner on this book as like uh, as the first woman to ever win best artist uh, an Eisner for this book. And yeah, it's, it's kind of also the last... Ongoing book of that era as well because Walking Dead is done, uh, Wick Div is done. A lot of the other stuff that was really popular there was just kind of minis. So, and also I think it's going to be basically double the same amount of issues, right? So it's I like believe- it's going to be fifty-four more yes. issues. <sighs> I'm I'm so excited, and
1: you know Fiona, I'm, she's probably my favorite artist working for various mm-hmm. reasons, but mainly because I don't think anybody does clothes and fashion as well as she does like everything Mm -hmm. that the characters in saga wear has it feels lived in but it's also super cool it's like it's very rare that I open a comic and and I'm like I would wear that jacket that the that this character
3: is wearing in this comic book even the issue 55 cover they released I was like wow just Pure style, just easy as fuck on the front of that cover already. And I was like, okay, you're still going with it. Yeah, I'll be really interested to see the release schedule because this is a book that has, it defies release schedules. People are yes. still so excited about it, even though it's been this like two year gap and they've had a lot of gaps before. So I'm really excited. Image Same needs here. another big, it needs a return of like a big book like this.
1: I, I I agree with you. These things are cyclical, but that, you know, this will be, this will, is huge for that company. Next our mini-segment, which we are dubbing The Editor's Note. X-Ray Vision's producer and uh, James Bond super-nerd Chris Lord will now join us to discuss the current state of Bond as a celebration of the release of the final Daniel Craig Bond film. No Time to Die! Directed by directorial super-hunk lover of log cabins, Carrie Fukunaga. (laughs) Chris, take it away.
4: Thanks for having me on. No, I was uh super excited to jump in here because yeah, I am like the biggest James Bond fan possible. And I I really loved this movie actually, but it's very different than anything else we've gotten out of Bond so far. But like I'm just kind of curious what you guys think about it.
3: I thought it was great.
1: Yeah, I quite enjoyed it. I think it's arguably the best Daniel Craig Bond.
4: Okay.
3: I think the same. Like, I think, especially if you're not as into the lore yes. of Bond. Yeah, that's like, fair. For a two-hour, 45-minute movie, this is an accessible, interesting, funny. It's it's so much funnier and campier than the other ones, but it still has stakes, like Craig wise. Yeah. And that's what I love like yeah. about Bond. Um, yeah, I, I just I thought it was I thought it was really great. I didn't, I was like, this is gonna drag, but it did not drag. I'm actually stoked to see it again. Yeah, the set really the set
1: pieces that. are wonderful. Craig is great. And it's, it's so good. And it's one of you know they've been doing the kind of like Bond, have you lost a step, James Bond for for a little while with the Daniel Craig run, but this is the most mm. effective uh, d- depiction of that, and it's super fun. The character is great. I liked
4: it. Yeah, I'm glad they finally let him be funny because Daniel Craig has actually really great comedic timing, but he's just been so serious in all these yeah. movies. So
1: sell us on Bond. Sell for those who are not Bond heads. Sell us on. Mm-hmm. Give it yeah. how. How would you pitch someone on Bond?
4: So I always think of Bond as like this really unique touchpoint through culture. Like it's the only major film series that's been going on for 60 years that's maintained that kind of status. So you can jump into any movie and kind of get a sense of what the world was like at the time the movie came out. But I also think he's this ongoing commentary on modern masculinity. In a lot of ways, I mean, I think there's all this conversation now, like, oh, should Bond be a woman? And I I actually think that's kind of reductive. I think you can say much more interesting things about how a male character can and should behave now Mm
5: -hmm. than by
4: changing up the gender. And so I always say, like, if you've never seen Bond, start with Casino Royale, because it's, like, arguably the best film that they've made. It's the most accessible. Then go watch Goldfinger, which is, like, deeply, deeply problematic, but it's, like, (laughs) the most Bond-
3: (laughs) But it's so it's so
4: campy and silly. It's though. so campy. There's, there's so many problems I'm not even going to start to get into here. <laughs> y- y- if you watch the movie, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but it's like the most Bond, Bond movie ever made. It's like where they set the formula. And then after that, I say go watch like Die Another Day or Diamonds Are Forever to see how like fucking ridiculously stupid some of them can be. Mm-hmm. You'll get a whole swath of it. But I think for like No Time to Die, you do kind of have to have seen the entire Craig run, which is different. Like, that's the thing that has kind of defined the Daniel Craig era is that it's been a huge departure from the traditional formula up to this point. Like, every other Bond film was always, like, a one-and-done thing. Like, you kind of watch it, and it didn't matter what came before right. what came after. And this is the first time they're like, oh, no, you have to know what's going on. And continuity is really, really mm-hmm. important to this era, which is uh, very different, and I think has kind of put them in a unique position going forward. Like, I don't really know what they do now i mean to get into like full-on full-on spoilers here for no time to die if you haven't seen it pause but like they kill bond and that's never dead. been done before
3: he's dead like, dead 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 dead
4: he's like 100 percent dead and you know it's interesting because this movie is almost like kind of a pseudo remake in some ways of on her majesty Secret service like mm-hmm. people are gonna be talking about that a lot so i want to address that like Not only does Bond say the phrase, we have all the time in the world, which is, like, the catchphrase from that film and also the title of the Louis Armstrong song, but, like, in that movie, he has a chance at happiness to, like, go and get married and be with the love of his life, and then that's cut short by an assassination attempt from Blofeld, and the exact same thing happens here but in the prologue to the film – but instead of anyone dying, like he basically decides he can never trust Madeline Swan again. And so like, okay, off you go. I'm never going to talk to you again, which of course, they, <laughs> of course they come back together. But like, yeah, he, he's now dead. And so it's like, what do you, yeah. How do they, what do you do? What do they do? That?
1: Like, how do they like, assuming that they don't have a moment in which like, M is in their, he was a life model. Yeah. Like goes. in their yeah, apartment, really they're in their apartment. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh my God, Bond.
4: <laughs> That's right. you, thought I was deceased, but I'm alive, or something. You're like... <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's weird because this movie almost kind of sets up some potential spinoffs. Like, so we get Lashana Lynch's Nomi, yes. who's the new 007, who I was really hoping she was going to be a scene stealer. Like, I kind of want to come out of this movie being like, hey, if they make a movie just around her, I would love to watch it. I thought she was a little bit underutilized. There was...
1: There was a lot of we're going to play with the idea that someone or anyone would steal anything from James Bond, his title, the mm-hmm. yeah. scenes, you know, his yeah, yeah. his status as like the protagonist. And it never happens for sure.
3: Yeah, so I, yeah, I thought Lashana was great, but she was also playing like a more classic contemporary spy yeah. against like a character yeah. whose entire point is to contradict that and be more interesting or different. But there was like, I think you're right about the spin-offs because. I mean, the side characters are always great in these Craig movies. Mm-hmm. They introduced that Anna de Armas. Craig scene is like 10 out of 10, one of the yeah. best scenes from any James oh, Bond movie. yeah.
4: She, she's the real scene stealer, yeah. Anna de Armas, as Paloma. Like, she's so weird and funny. And like, she seems like she doesn't know what she's doing. And then she's like crazy competent, but also like a hard drinker, just like Bond. It's so weird and fun.
3: And they don't sleep together. Like, right. they just yeah, have a great. They just have a cool, super, like, mass killing. And then they're like, hey, you agree. <laughs> like, you too, yeah.
4: see you soon. What's Uh, Let's, like, grab a drink and shoot some people again soon. Yeah. it would be fun. It'd be really great.
3: Yeah, that, I really, I you know when studios, like, release scenes from movies to sell the movie? I'm like, they need to just put that on YouTube because people would be losing their mind. Like, it's such a, it's just such a solid space. But, so, something I wonder is, like, you talked, the old James Bond movies before, Craig, it's like, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what happens in the first one, just continue on, it doesn't matter. It's a different actor. blah, blah, blah. So, do you think they're essentially going to use that formula to just keep doing James Bond but with a different person or do you think because they did these movies that are like such a capsule with like an ongoing storyline that they've kind of trapped themselves into a corner
4: I think they have kind of backed themselves into a corner like he can't just kind of pick up and run with it now because they've made continuity such a big deal and they made Craig such a big deal I mean I understand why they killed him because I think one they wanted to give him a proper send-off and two they had to find a reason to not have him come back because he's been the most popular Bond since Connery like mm-hmm. hands down everyone loves him so much but i think you, i think it's hard to do a spin off because you could have a new character be 7 the way they did here but like the end credits even say james bond will return right, right? so james <laughs> bond will come back yeah so i don't think they can do that i think you have to try to just keep going and maybe because craig has been such a departure that whole era you could go back and just have it be all right we bring in someone new we go back to the traditional like you know give him a dossier set him on a mission keep going and i think they have to pull back on making continuity such a big deal and just kind of go back to that thing. It's like, and we just keep going on It's a new actor because there's been this, this idea that Bond's a code name and it's actually been proven right, right, not yeah, true a yeah, yeah. number of yeah. times. Yeah. yeah, like even Roger Moore films make reference to Sean Connery films and so on. So that's not the thing. I, I don't want them to do that either. Like, I'm kind of sad because I feel like we're going to have to now say goodbye to like Ray Fiennes as M mm. and Naomi Harris as Moneypenny and Ben Whishaw as Q and I love all of them but I think... You can't just bring them back again and have it still make sense, unfortunately.
1: Is there a yeah. uh, next Bond? So much of the talk about Bond is who's next. I don't want to get into yeah. like speculating about who about who could be the next Bond, but does the next Bond have to be ripped now that Daniel Craig has established that Bond <laughs> is ripped?
4: I mean- Bond, because I, uh, like Casino Royale- Asking the important Casino questions. Royale,
1: James Bond coming out of the water. It was a landmark moment in the history of Bond. Oh, yeah. And the water glistening, running off of his yeah, delts.
3: And, and, like, a nice inversion of, like, you know, uh, as Ursula Andrews Yes, out it's like the gaze. That, yeah. Head, look so at Bond. Yeah, but the, yeah.
4: The gaze is now on Bond. And I mean, just for me personally, considering that that moment in Quisina Royale was a big part of my, like, gay awakening, like, can we please keep <laughs> having Bond be super ripped? Just on a personal level, I want that. Let's, let's ogle Bond yeah. a little bit more here. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think he's got to be ripped still. I yeah. think in
3: the MCU age, I think it's there's no question. Like, yeah. I think th- I would like to see like Dad Bod Bond or whatever, <laughs> like, you know, whatever the straight people call bears. Like, you know, I would like to see that. But I think realistically, you're gonna have someone on an MCU esque diet, and they'll, they'll probably cast someone you're not expecting to be ripped. And then when they have that moment, everyone's gonna be like, Whoa! How did
4: they do that? It's like, oh my god, how do they do that? Three months Bond? of
3: training and not drinking water for like two
4: years <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, he, he's going to be ripped. I, I want to see, like, um an actor of color take over the role. Like, I think that's where you can go now is, like, oh, you can make the character a little more diverse. And then, again, me, like, wanting everything to be more queer. I think a modern Bond would fuck everybody. So, yes, make him bisexual, I, I, make him pansexual. Like, 100%. just put that in there and just let it be a thing.
3: Also, didn't Daniel Craig do some incredible interview recently where he was talking about how he always kisses his leading men? So, he was, like, kissing Rami Malek or something when the movie I happened. somehow I, missed this. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was a, a real thing that he's said so I'm like just make that canon he's already yeah. doing the work like also yeah like you said James Bond he would literally he would
1: we would sleep with yeah, every question there calling back to our our conversation in previously on about uh, about John Kent coming out as bisexual along with Tim Drake etc yeah. that I I think the thing that the Bond producers will realize is you just have so much more story when your main character can have a romantic relationship with every other character mm-hmm. in the story yeah. Think about it. Yeah. Think about it. James Bond producers.
3: Mm-hmm. And also, like you said, like it not only does that, but it also it opens up a different aspect of like a male masculinity exploration, whether they're queer, whether they're a person of color, whether they're both. That adds a different layer to the thing they've already been doing for 60 years. Yes.
4: Yeah, exactly. You don't have to have a gay character who's super feminine. It can be like the most masculine character in the world. And also, yeah, he happens to sleep with men. It's fine.
1: Chris, thank you for joining us on this uh, wonderful talk that you have been dying to have about the latest James Bond film. No time to die!
4: (laughs) Yeah!
1: When we come back, Rosie and I step out of the airlock.
6: You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time.
1: Stepping out of the airlock and into uh, the no-holds-barred high-stakes survival series Squid Game currently streaming on Netflix. This is, according to Netflix now, Rosie, their biggest international hit. This can't be stressed enough. Do I believe that this is a huge international hit? I do. I believe 100 percent because listen, I I started watching it because everybody on my timeline was like Squid Game, Squid Game, mm-hmm. Squid Game. So I believe that it is a huge international hit, but it can't be said enough when Netflix says this is our biggest hit of all time. This is a huge global hit. This is a massive hit, blah, 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 blah. We are taking their word for it because Netflix, like all other streamers, does not tell anybody about what their viewership numbers are, what their stats are. We don't know anything about it.
3: Yes, let's be let's be equal here no streamers no streamers towers, at anything all. other than their own there's no Nielsen kind of there's there's equivalents that are popping up but this is just Apple or Netflix or Disney plus saying hey 85 million people watch
1: and you just have to Stop. say I believe
3: you like you said I actually squid game I believe it like I don't know what the numbers are but do I believe or want to believe that we live in a world where more people watch this than Bridgerton yes and I like Bridgerton yes like, no beef but if that excites me that this is like could be the biggest Netflix show of all time.
1: So, a uh, quick recap uh, on Squid Game: Song gi Hoon, otherwise known as Player uh, Four Fifty Six, uh, is a inveterate gambler. He is in debt. the The debts are causing the friction with his family, with his ex wife, his ability to take care of their daughter. And so he is approached by a shadowy group to join a mysterious game that uh, could possibly award him as much as 45 and a half billion Korean won, which is about 38 million dollars, certainly a decent payday. And the losers are eliminated in the most literal way. They are they are killed off usually by a gunshot mm-hmm. to the head, occasionally by other means falling from great heights, etc. The games <laughs> are run by a coterie of of masked individuals in red jumpsuits, and uh, they are armed to the teeth. They, meanwhile, are led by the mysterious front man who uh, controls the game with an authoritarian fist uh, and who in a—and this is a huge spoiler— uh, yeah, big, big, spoiler. big, big spoiler turns out to be the long lost uh, brother of the detective character in the game. Okay. So there have been shows and movies and stories that have criticized power and criticized capitalism and then explore the idea of selfishness mm-hmm. as a generator of drama and suspense before. But what do you think? What's the appeal of this, of Squid Game, which. It's not often that a show that no one expects comes up and, like, captures the conversation. I guess, like, Stranger Mm -hmm. Things and other Netflix property.
3: Yeah. Which was also definitely more marketed.
1: Definitely more marketed, right? Just
3: a little bit more. But I think the first reason, which does not touch on anything that we say, but aesthetically and stylistically, this show is so unique looking. And I do really think the pink jumpsuits, the Escher-style neon staircases... The, the stylized kid game. I think that's what got people to maybe click on it, you know? But the the nature of the capitalist critique and the idea of what we'll do to survive, I just think this is unbelievably timely. And it works on... As I was watching it, I was just thinking, like, multiple different times throughout this show, you're like, oh, this could be about uh, veterans who've been in the sure. military and then come out and they're homeless. Or this could be about, you know, the... You've got to, it's always about following the rules in Squid Game. If you don't, if you follow the rules, everyone's equal. And if you follow the rules, then you can have this great big payout, which is just society right. and is also bullshit, you know? Also, I think something that's really interesting, and I know me and you were talking about this even like last yeah. week before we were recording, but we are in a space now. It's 2021. 21 years ago, Battle Royale, the movie came out. A year before incredibly that, influential, the book came
1: Incredibly out. influential movie.
3: Unbelievable.
1: That its fingerprints are all over Squid Game, if you haven't seen yeah. it much.
3: Unbelievable, directed by Kinji Fukusaku, just absolutely cultural, just zeitgeist movie. But we are now living in an era where that has existed and been influencing pop culture for 21 years. Hunger Games.
1: Influential to the point where Suzanne Collins' editor told her, uh, there's this book (laughs) and movie uh, called Battle Royale. Don't read it or watch it as you were in the middle Mm -hmm. because... Uh, the editors had become aware of it and had become aware of how close it was to hunger because they were yeah. like don't read it don't watch it don't do it
3: and also like the most popular video game in the world right now is Fortnite, yeah. which was inspired again by battle royale so we're in a space where this story has become a trope the idea of like the survivalist yes. the you kill everyone else to survive and it's just you has become like an ultimate pop culture trope So there's something about that and then, you know, living through a pandemic and the massive wealth divide and stories that are already inspiring these kind of conversations like Parasite. And I feel like it just ended up being perfectly timed to kind of engage and get everyone in like they were saying this was the top show in, you know, 30 countries or something like And also it helps that it's incredibly well-made and well-written. The production dine is amazing. The story arcs are incredible. And I think the biggest thing, which I know we're going to touch on, that separates this from every other one and why I think people are so into it is episode two. The option of leaving and coming back. That, I think, is the big hook. That is
1: a very, very notable difference in these kind of stories, You mentioned Battle Royale. I think if we're going to say that these kind of tales where there's a kind of like non-zero structure in which in order for a character to advance, another character must definitely lose, and that usually means their life, and that creates this kind of like ruthless emotional cadence, you're exactly right. The thing that makes this different than The Hunger Games, uh, Battle Royale, Survivor you know, mm-hmm. all these other shows is that these characters are given the option to opt out of it and to leave. And by leaving, they then make the decision that actually the larger system, the larger economic system that we find ourselves in separate and aside from the metaphor of the squid game is so punishing that it's actually the cost benefit analysis leads us to say, we must return to mm-hmm. the game. Uh, that. Underlines the capitalist critique in a lot stronger of a way than a lot of these other games. yeah uh, I, I agree with you it's it is really quite a different thing.
3: yeah, and even like the name of that episode is hell. yeah, so it's like you've been in the game, you've seen 200 people die in this really brutal way, but the hell is just going back onto the street. you know, and we learn later on that there's more machinations there, the people they meet, the conversations they have. but I think that choice really gives you that even the biggest hook of these is what would i do would i be able to do it could i do it could i find a way to not do it would i thrive in that situation it's the same as the zombie apocalypse everyone has a zombie apocalypse yes. plan how would you survive so putting them back in the outside world and having them choose to go back in that adds a whole different layer to that yeah earth.
1: i agree with you i mean like one of the one of the traits that all these kind of stories and games share is The action takes place on a removed and isolated battle Mm -hmm. arena or a desert island or, you know, in the case of, like, the Saw movies, like in some hidden, you know, playpen for a serial killer that acts as, like, a a limited resource metaphor for Mm -hmm. whatever the larger idea is. And also that the characters are faced with you know, impossible choices that ask them to prioritize their own self-interest above normal things. So like in Squid Game, you know, 456 is asked to prioritize self-interest above like his own warm feelings for other characters. Mm -hmm. He's asked to, you know, walk away from an older character who basically he is the only one who sees value in that character in the context of a game. A lot of times in stories like this, a character is asked to prioritize their own self-interest above like even parts of themselves, you know, and saw like notably mm-hmm. Carrie Elwes' character cuts off their own leg in order to yes. move forward in the game. And you see a lot of, you know, Game of Thrones has like these same kind of things where people become maimed or lose an arm in order for them to continue on. Um, and that kind of tenor is part and parcel to this style. And it, it's it's hard to escape from the fact that like this style of storytelling it's always been around right
3: yeah lord of the flies, of the, flies running the running
1: man the most dangerous game came out in the 20s um
3: mm-hmm.
1: but particular since battle royale and i think the late 90s it's just become more and more popular whether it's survivor right remove characters remove contestants to a to a to a desert island where they mm-hmm. then must compete against each other big brother lock Contestants in this kind of like almost laboratory recreation of a house in which they must compete against each other. Uh, The Purge, Castaway, The Walking Dead, The Road, Cormac McCarthy's Road. There's all these (laughs) versions of this. And then you mentioned Fortnite, Call of Duty, Warzone, Apex Legends. Mm -hmm. This for some reason, this setup is resonating with people right now.
3: I actually think as well, like you've touched on something really interesting that I wouldn't have necessarily made the connection between. But I think if we talk about why Squid Game is so popular now, you cannot in any way discount reality TV. Somebody who watches The Bachelorette or Survivor really... Passionately. They might not have seen Battle Royale, but they are essentially watching the same storyline, just with it's not death, it's uh you're you're being eliminated in a romantic sense. Honestly, I would probably rather do Battle Royale than The Bachelor. (laughs) That show is terrifying to me. It's so terrifying. But um, but like I think that's really interesting because what we're saying is this is no matter what kind of medium or genre, there's novels about it, there's reality TV about it, there's horror movies about it, there's games that kids play about it. This is a story that is resonating with people. And somehow Squid Game has kind of captured that in a way that is making people really excited. And also, like, I do think it's cool to see people having conversations about their readings of it and and what I think think works. And and it's like people will be like, oh, it's a meme. But I'm like, that is how information spreads. You know, I saw so many good memes about like, there's like one really popular one that's basically like, oh, you know, squid game. Imagine a world where people have to sign away their lives and and, and like rights and bodily autonomy so that they can survive. And then it's like the US military like hiding. You know, like I think it's people are seeing something in this story specifically that speaks to them in a way where it's not analogous. It's not like, oh, maybe it means this. It's not your literary student reading like, you know, the Scarlet Letter and someone's saying, maybe he meant this. People are saying, this is what this means. And I can see that this is what it means. Yeah, it's like when
1: I play Fortnite and Call of Duty Warzone, two of the most popular games, certainly for streaming and for people to play. And I think mm-hmm. Warzone launched in March of 2020. So basically in conjunction wow. with quarantine. And, you know, the basic setup is you are dropped onto an island, well, an Eastern, a vaguely Eastern European uh, battle space, right? With a hundred other players, and you either compete against them one on one or you split up in teams of four to compete against the other teams, and you scavenge weapons and ammo and share them amongst your team. Um,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and it's, so you, there is this kind of like negotiating for resources thing that's going on. Meanwhile, you're competing in a battle space that is shrinking all the time, there's this circle that is that is gradually getting smaller. And if you are outside that circle, you are taking damage. But if you're inside the circle, you remain safe. Ah,
3: that is so interesting because that's from Battle Royale. So
1: they're right. And I think, you know, at least for me, it's like we are constantly inundated in the news with story upon story about like the unstoppable nature of climate change and how it is shrinking the livable Mm -hmm. space of the world. We are... There's fires over here. There's crazy storms over here. You know, extreme temperatures here. uh, Populations on the move. And it seems like the people who are supposed to do something about it are completely powerless to do anything about it because like in Squid Game, the game itself has its own agency and it is pursuing its own Mm -hmm. ends. The game wants to exist and wants to continue being played and no one really has any... Uh, power to stop the game from from doing its thing. And I think a lot of the ways that people, and again, this is my own theory, this is what I would put forward, is the way that a lot of people are working through their anxieties about climate change, about the pandemic, about the future, are games like Fortnite, Call of Duty Warzone, Apex Legends, shows and stories like Battle Royale, where you put yourself in the shoes of people in this world of dwindling resources, of shrinking Mm -hmm. livable space, and you are presented with the question, what would you do to survive, to continue playing the game?
3: Yeah, I also think that's something that's really interesting, specifically in the space of, like, Battle Royale, of uh, Squid Game, Hunger Games even, like, it's also really interesting. So Battle Royale's, like, the idea is that because of student delinquency and population, kind of huge population stuff, they're going to just get classes of kids to kill each other off, yes. right? And in Squid Game, our our in-character is an addict. So I think something that is really appealing about these stories is these characters who are put into these situations are not, I'm putting inverted commas, good. You, you get flawed characters. In Battle Royale, the kids, you see one of the kids stab a teacher, yeah. like, but they still deserve to live and not be put in these terrible situations. And Squid Game is a really expanded version of that because the long form storytelling means we get to meet all these different people and learn the different things that drive them and the struggles that they've had and the ways that they choose to live their lives and why. And I think that people really want that empathy for themselves and they want to hopefully have that empathy for other people. So I think that kind of having these stories where flawed people are put in terrible situations by extremely rich, terrible people making decisions that do not help them. That's probably very relatable to a lot of people. (laughs) And I think that kind of the bad rich people having fun at the expense of people struggling who are just trying to do their best, that is a very relatable story. And like you said, it's also something we see on the news. It's something that we see in real life. So to see it in a more entertainment-focused way that is also a little bit more searing and satirical and kind of pointed is is really appealing.
1: I mean, I think that there is something quite trenchant for people watching the, the Squid Game. You know, the idea of if you fall into debt, you know, if you have some debts, if you've made some maybe uh, poor economic choices or just had like bad luck— or if you mm-hmm. are elderly, mm-hmm. you have no value to this society and therefore you, uh, will, you can quite possibly fall into this game where uh, as brutal as it is, the outcome is, is basically your only shot at upward mobility within the larger context of the capitalist system. There is something like brutally truthful about that, Mm -hmm. although it's hard for me to escape with all of these stories, whether it's Battle Royale, Hunger Game, what have you, Saw, and then Squid Game, even Parasite. It's an incredibly trenchant critique of the system, but there is no revolutionary answer. Mm -mm. The only kind of catharsis at the end of Squid Game, spoiler, is that the human capacity for generosity can somehow disrupt the game. But the game continues. Mm -hmm. There is no overthrowing of the game. You know, uh, Song Gi-hun just merely decides that he will reject the reward. It's not that he wins or even, uh, you know, unmasks or overthrows the Mm -hmm. people throwing the game.
3: Yeah, I think even like Hunger Games is really, really famous uh, in the YA community because even though technically there's a revolution, it's led by Katniss, you know, the end of the book is like she has like complex PTSD and hates her life and she just lives in this winner's town and it's just terrible. And the kind of implication is like things don't really get better. Like it's, and that, I think that is really, that's one of the most brutal, but also I guess maybe something that really makes these stories stand out is they don't often have a happy ending. Yeah. Like Squid Game promises maybe he's gonna maybe he he's not gonna just go on living his life. Like he's gonna try and and maybe do something. But what can he do? You know? And I think I think Squid Game specifically is a really interesting um look at kind of complicity or like how much how far we would go in that system to kind of achieve what we want. Because the episode um like the marbles episode Uh, episode
1: six which is the yeah the 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 brutal episode yeah
3: it's just so horrible but like i'm pretty sure from thinking about it and watching it the episode is really um they you have to team up with someone that you trust they team them up and then they pit them against each other in any game of marbles and all you've got to do is get the other the other players 10 marbles right and it's horrible we see sang completely betray ali who's like the one of the sweetest characters in the show it's just it's it's a masterclass class intention and and sadness and and devastation but i'm pretty sure that that episode is really really key to how squid game works because sang basically who is this star of his local area. He went to financial college. He's seen as this huge right. success, but the truth is he's in lots of debt and he's an incredibly selfish person as we learn as the show goes on. He essentially tricks Ali into giving him his marbles. And then he says, you know, don't I win? If that logic works, then every single person there could have just swapped bags of marbles with the other person. Right. But I think the kind of point of the episode is by that point, they're so entrenched in the system that all they can think about is like brutality that's a good point. I think that
1: what I took away from that episode and what I took away from, you know, like Song Ji-Hun's player four, five, six is ongoing support for uh, player one, the elderly character, is that what the story is telling us is that if you pursue your self-interest rationally, you become part of the system and complicit in its brutality, right? So therefore mm-hmm. the way forward, the heroic way forward, is to Trust your own irrational intuition, right? And emotional connection with a person. There's actually no good reason why 456 should select Oil Nam as his partner or mm-hmm. select him for any of the game. Like there's no g- good rational reason. He does it because he sees that man and he says, I just feel a connection to him. I feel warmly towards him for whatever reason. And therefore I'm gonna I'm gonna have him on my team. For no good reason. And, but then that becomes the thing that, that allows him to move forward in the game and makes him the mm-hmm. hero of our story. And it's actually yeah. like a quite sad idea, but an interesting idea as well in the way that people make decisions, which is that, I personally believe that most of us make decisions not for reasons of like uh, that we derive from rational thought or our intellect. We make emotional, intuitive decisions and then we mm-hmm. back map whatever our personal intellectual philosophy is on it and say, here's the reason I did that based on these criteria when actually I just made an emotional decision. And I think that's that's a lot of what happens with player four, five, six here. He makes these emotional generous decisions that are not based on anything rational at all and he quote-unquote wins
3: Mm -hmm. yeah it's there's like I I think that's one of the other things that probably has made this show so huge there's so many different readings of it and conversations to be had and and moments and it's in that sense like it's a real like water cooler show even though a lot of people aren't in the office people are talking about it online they're talking about it to their friends they're they're DMing people. My friend was like texting our other friends at midnight talking about the episodes that they'd watched because they were just so like heartbroken by episode six. And I think in that way, that's also part of its power because there's just all these different readings. And there's also all these, I'm sure there's people who would be like, yeah, I would do what Sangwoo did. I would, I would just do whatever I needed to do to get that money and fix my life. Right. And then there's other people who are just like, What the fuck is wrong with you? I also think another thing that probably appeals to people about this show is his character is presented as higher education makes you smarter. It makes you better. You have succeeded. You are wealthy. But actually, he is the most morally questionable person that we get to meet in the show. And I think that that inversion of the idea of like wealthiness and success being next to kind of moral... Uh, goodness or 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 kind of how well your life is which obviously we're getting a lot of good critiques now succession like rich people are terrible um but yeah i think that i also think that's really interesting because i think in a lot of stories player 456 would be the character you couldn't trust or the character that you're supposed to think is morally has a gray area but really he also goes on that journey of realizing it's actually his childhood friend who was meant to be this huge great success and i think that's really interesting
1: How would you do in Squid Game? How would you do in the game?
3: I'd be really bad at it, man. Like, I I know. In the old days, I would have been like, I used to have like a zombie apocalypse plan. Battle Royale was such a formative movie for me. There was like three Halloweens when I was a teenager that I made a Battle Royale costume. I had a shirt that was like screen printed, like a white school shirt that was screen printed with the girl getting shot on the edge of the rocks. Like, I loved that movie so much. I'm just like a soft, I'm like a soft boy. I would I would not be able to kill anyone. I would be like helping everyone. I would Well, that would make you the hero I of the just, story.
1: Like in any of these self-interest stories, you know, like no, it's the person or I would who
3: would die horribly, that's, like Alex. Yes. Yeah. I would just- <laughs> No, you know what? I was watching this show and I was thinking a lot. And there was definitely a time when I was 19, whatever, and I was super fucking poor and I was just living my life. There was a time when. I could imagine in a fictional world that I would have been enticed by something similar in a fictional sense. Like, and in that way, maybe I would have had the survival instinct. But now I'm in my thirties. I sort of like drink some tea and like chill. (laughs) I would just be like, I'd be like, I'm not going in there. I'm like, I don't need the money. (laughs) I'll be, uh, because I'm going to die.
1: How would you do? No, I think I'd be like, so red light, green light, I'd be fine. Let's go through them. Let's see. Uh,
3: Okay, yeah, that's a good idea.
1: Let's just go to... See, so, yeah, let's just go down that. So, I'm clumsy. Red light, I'd be shot straight away. Red light, green light. I think I'd be okay because I think I would realize off the bat what it was. What is the second game? The vote. This is where they vote. Um, I would vote leave. It's not worth the, like you know whatever yeah. else is going on in my life. I would definitely leave. Uh, and then so then they're outside, and then we get the tug of war game where they have to think strategically. <laughs> I'm bad at tug of war. Like I would not be good. I've at I've got it. like
3: no upper arm strength. I would I would lose. I think unless I had a cool strategic.
1: We would need someone like Oh Il Nam <laughs> to to, mm-hmm. to talk us through. Okay, we need the strongest person in the back. Everybody set their feet facing straight. You pull as hard as you can the for one sixty seconds. Yeah, yeah, it's like okay, and then so that one I would do bad. Um, let's see the next game okay the marbles game forget it I don't know (laughs) I'd be killed I would be end up being shot yeah 100% I would I I would just
3: I would just try and convince someone like when you had the two young girls you know um and they didn't know any games because they're not like boomers and they're young I was like just make up a game they said any game just make up a game called swap season swap your marbles maybe in that situation maybe that one I could potentially survive just by outwitting them but then again they'd probably be pissed that I did that and then shoot me in the head so I would probably I definitely would have died during the honeycomb game I have like zero oh my god that one
1: yeah detail that one I
3: think I'd unless I'd be okay in the honeycomb if it was game. the licking I could have worked if, if, if I'd have seen player 456 licking it then I would have been fine but with the needle I definitely would have broken the that. honeycomb
1: game I'd be fine and then there's the uh, glass walkways game (laughs) that one
3: i would just fall. i would
1: fall i would fall and i don't have (laughs) the canniness to like betray somebody else or push somebody else onto the thing and be like you go first
3: so the only thing i think that they obviously missed there that i would have i would have tried to do this but i also would have still fallen because i'm very short and i can't jump very far but like i think that they should have taken the shoes that they took right. off and throw then them. used them to throw on the glass. Yes. I don't see any rule against that. You I take, think a lot of times.
1: Yeah, or just like bash you know. on it with your hand. Can you just like reach exactly. across and like they, bash on
3: it? They, they were like, they were committed too much to jump. Okay, so what if it was squid game, but kick the can? Do you think you would Oh, win? I
1: think I'd win. I think I'd be good at, <laughs> I also think I'd be good at the actual squid game. I think I'd be pretty good at that. Um, Mm -hmm. because I'm wily and I have, I can, I'm not fast, but I can fake you out. I think I have some good fakes. Mm -hmm. I think I'd be all right at that game. Um, but I don't, I would be killed. I'd be killed somewhere in the middle (laughs) of this game. No, there's no question. Certainly like when the lights went out and everybody started massacring each other, like at that point I would probably be killed.
3: I would definitely be dead. I know. I was like, I was trying to think of like what other like funny games they would like squid game, but it's like musical chairs. That would be like so grim to die with musical jazz.
1: <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes, uh 91% critics approval, 85% audience approval. It's certainly one of the zeitgeistiest hits uh, in recent memory. Um, if you haven't watched Battle Royale and you're like, oh, what is is there anything else like this? Go rent the movie Battle mm-hmm. Royale and watch it. Pitch it, pitch it to our audience.
3: Yeah, right? so it's really just one of the most important kind of Japanese movies of that era it was based on a book that came out in 1999 within a year they'd made a manga and a movie of it the book is by Koshun Takami um, and Kinji Fukasaku who directed Battle Royale is like a really famous Japanese war movie director so it's just it's this epic in scope but intimate in story it stars beat Takeshi as a teacher who ends up overseeing this class of kids who have been drugged very much like there's a lot of stuff that squid game touches on from battle royale they get gassed on their way on a school trip they end up on this island they're each given a random weapon uh it can be anything from a dustbin lid to uh a scythe or an ak-47 there's a kid on the island who's played the game before he's just a psychopath um he has a, a machine gun and Is very similar to Squid Game in the nature of like, what would you do? Would you team up? Would you not team up? It has unbelievably cool aesthetics. It's just such a cool movie. And it and it and it has, you know, it's it's kind of funny because I think watching it now, like some people, if you haven't seen it before, you'll you'll kind of be like, oh, this is a little bit like tame. It's very brutal. There's a lot of violence, but it has uh there's quiet moments. And those also lead to some of the the best, most brutal sections. Like I would just say if you're watching it, keep an eye out for the lighthouse. I always remember that. Um Another thing I would say that's really key to look into if you enjoyed this is so there's a manga called Kaiji. And I know that I think Reddit and a lot of other places have been very much, <laughs> have been like really keen on talking about this because so Kaiji's by Nobuyuki Fukamoto. It's a manga from 1996. They've got, and the first arc is called Gambling Apocalypse. And then it became an anime called Ultimate Survivor. And it's basically about a gambling addict who gets really really into debt and then gets asked to play dangerous games to solve his debts now you don't end up dying in this you end up getting put into manual labor if you lose but like the first game he plays is like a rock paper scissors game battle royale and kaiji are the two things i think that you would probably just absolutely love to jump into if you're looking for a deadly games story that has echoes of that social commentary i wrote an article at nerdist like nine things to watch after squid game that's a bit more broad and kind of looks at different kind of social commentary movies and shows but those are the two things I think and battle royale is definitely at top I think it's actually streaming free it's streaming free right now on yeah, like 2 yeah, pluto yeah, yeah yeah um well it's been fascinating
1: to talk about rosie up next the hive mind
6: you like to watch new stuff right well go to hulu and see what's new because hulu has new stuff all the time Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu.
0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mitt Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
6: Welcome to the Hive
1: Mind, where we dive deeper into a specific topic. This week, X-Ray Vision is including a conversation with two producers on the acclaimed anime anthology series Star Wars Visions, Jackie Lopez, VP of Franchise Production at Lucasfilm Animation, and Kanako Shirasaki, Head of Production at Cubic Pictures. Before we get into it, what's your relationship to animation? How did you get into this line of work, which is, you know, I, have, when I whenever I'm speaking to people who have what I would call cool jobs Uh, it's always I I always love asking them how they got into it because you know it's for me uh, as a fan of all this stuff the idea that you could have as your job you know working for Lucasfilm or working for Cubic and doing all this animation stuff it's so cool and so interesting and I'm sure there's a lot of people who would love to know how do you do it how did it happen so what is your personal relationship with animation how'd you get into this Uh, start with Jackie.
2: Hi, I well, I feel like I got into it in a very circuitous fashion. So and I feel like a lot of people I know who are in this business have a very similar story. So for those out there, it's like sometimes there's many, many ways into cool jobs. And I do think my job is cool. (laughs) Um, I started in live action. I always loved film. So I started in Live action production and then fell into a niche corner of visual effects. Um, And I just love the craftsmanship of visual effects, you know, miniatures and puppets and pyrotechnics. It was just really um, the collaboration with really smart people was just what I was drawn to. And as visual effects progressed, we started doing more and more animation and animation into live action plates. And the more I did that, the more I realized, wow, I really love telling the story with these animated characters as the main protagonist. And so I, Beowulf, I did Beowulf with Robert Zemeckis and I've just been in animation ever since. I just love it. I love 2D, I love 3D, and I've been fortunate Enough to sort of be able to dabble in all of those um, formats?
5: So, I've been always interested in uh, mutual understanding through different cultures. Uh, I'm Japanese, but my half families are from China, and I grew up in Japan as a half Japanese and half Chinese. So, I'm really interested in that type of things. And after I moved to New York, I worked for a nonprofit organization there's cultural Japanese uh, cultural promotion through uh, performing arts or other uh, related uh, areas. So I was in charge of the section of performing arts and films. And during that time, I met Justin Leach, uh, the CEO of the QB pictures as a friend and at in New York, because there are so many film screening or anime film screening in New York. So I occasionally see him. And then I went back to Japan And he suddenly texts me saying, hey, Kanako, are you free in December? Because I I go to Tokyo and I have a meeting with these people and I need someone who helped me to coordinate these things and do the translation for my meeting. And I was taking off that time, but I was like, sure, it sounds interesting. Uh, You says anime, so okay, uh, sure, I can do that. And that's how I got into cubic pictures. (laughs) So that one text message from Justin really changed my life.
1: <laughs> um, you know, everyone that I, I speak to and ask that question to, they've all got, uh, you know, to Jackie's point, uh, a really interesting path to get there. To Star Wars visions, how did the how did the project start to take shape, and how did you um, select the studios that ended up taking taking part in this?
2: Um, either of you, I would say. Um, anime. doing an anime project has been on our minds at Lucasfilm for a very long time, where all fans knew um, George Lucas was not only a fan of Japanese cinema, but he was also a big fan of Japanese animation, you know, with Miz- Mizaki, yes, but also it went deeper than that. And um, we were always looking for the right time or the right way to do a Star Wars expression in anime. And I think as D plus got up and running, it sort of afforded us an opportunity and a way to move forward on this different expression of Star Wars. And then choosing the different studios was very difficult (laughs) because there are (laughs) really so many, so many talented studios right now in Japan doing excellent work. Um, And that's where Kaneko and Justin really helped us curate what we were looking for, because we knew we wanted a variety of styles and storytelling to the heavy action, to the heartwarming, to the slow and serene. Um, So it was really Kaneko and Justin helping guide us. There are some we knew we wanted to go to, but then they were introducing us to the works of many others. Kanika, kind of
5: if you want to expand on that. Sure. Uh, yeah, so what we really wanted to show is that there's no one type of Japanese anime. There's like, it has, like like many, there's many different types of Harry movie. There's many different types of Japanese anime and it has different sto- style in storytelling, different style in visual expression. So since this might be for some people, this is the first time in Japanese anime. So we really wanted to make sure this just gonna be a great introduction for them who doesn't really th- who are not familiar with Japanese anime. So uh Justin also like he was he used to work at production IG before and knows uh so many has so many connections in the Japanese anime industry. So he did also did lots of extensive research on making like, which studios to reach out to.
1: go if you had to break it down, what are the kind of main styles within anime? What are the main schools and, and you know aesthetic styles that we see? And how did you try to present those to mm-hmm. Lucasfilm as, as possible expressions for, for this project?
5: I think that also, ch- uh, the style changes by like a decade. Like if you look you at know. the 90s animation and like animations from 2000 to 2010 and from the 10 years from there, like the trend in character designs looks so different as well as like it was a hundred percent hand painted before and now there's a 3d CG animation a little bit and there's yeah. a combination of these two so I think the visual expression of uh, change a lot since then but the core storytelling might be, might be the same throughout uh, they have a theme for like families or like relationship between characters um, so what we really trying to show here was like we wanted to show the production ig like the industry veteran who's been there yeah. for a really long time to like a very young studio like uh studio co and jenna studio who has really like fresh ideas and trying to find like a new artist to bring out the new expressions um, so yeah, that is yeah that is what we are looking for when we are in discussion.
1: And Jackie, how did the engagement, the creative part of this process work? What kind of guidelines, if any, did Lucasfilm uh, give the studios? Or was, it, or was it just give us your, your wildest pitch?
2: <laughs> well, I think in the beginning, it was sort of, you know, what would your story be? What kind of story mm-hmm. would you want to tell? And we asked for pitches from the studios. And we said, you could just give us one if you only have one idea, or if you have a few, go ahead and and let us know what those are. And um, so we didn't really give guidelines at the beginning. So we got some really great pitches in, and then we had to curate from there, you know, because if there were two that were kind of the same or focused on the same type of story, we kind of curated the stories. And then from there you know, we were nervous because I know these Japanese creatives that we went out to, you know, they're not used to creative of guidance like that, right? Because <laughs> that's their... So we tried to be very respectful of that and just sort of help them give guidelines or dig out the story a little more. But it went very smoothly. I mean, we were dealing, working with people who are really professional and great at their craft so I would say we just had little bumpers but it was really their stories and their visions that we helped bring to the screen.
1: As you mentioned you y'all were looking for a, a range of styles and tones um, do you have any uh, favorites from the series that or standout moments that you just personally like really vibe with that you really like Kanako?
5: Um, it's hard to pick a favorite moments because there's like <laughs> there are just so many great moments i would say like so four studios did the sound mixing together with skywalker sound and it's like remotely so people connecting through the internet and then listen to the audio um that was really cool experience because that is a great collaboration between skywalker sound and the studios in japan many japanese people are shy a little bit in front of camera. Mm-hmm. So the first reaction they listened to Skywalker Sound Mix was a little difficult for us to <laughs> decode. I was like, and then we don't really see everyone's reaction because yeah. camera is a one part of one section of the studio in Japan. So we re- we only see like a black walls and some people moving around.
2: And it but was silent. It was silent like, Do silence. they hate it? Do they
1: hate yeah. it? They- <laughs> I uh in a previous life, I was a jazz musician. I did a number of gigs in Osaka and Fukuoka in Japan a few years ago. And I remember for Blue Note Records, And oh, wow. the person who brought us there told us, he was like, "Listen, when you're done with the song, the, you they'll be quiet. But that doesn't <laughs> mean they know they like it. Believe me, they like it, but they're not going to make any sound. So just be ready for that. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. I wish someone would have told us that, Jason. (laughs) So I was, I was trying to say,
5: like, I'm sure they like it. Yeah. (laughs) And but I remember there's the mix session was dual. Like, we heard like after the quiet moment, we heard the huge hand clapping from Japan, and then they said like they just like had a goosebump, and then. They couldn't really say anything after watching their animation with, like, Star Wars sound on it. So that was a cool uh, moment. Yeah, I really cherish.
1: Uh, Jackie, any favorite favorite moments, favorite uh, parts of the series, favorite episodes?
2: Wow. Hanako and I talk about this all the time because our favorites shift from day to day, from week to week. And my favorites at scripts page changed when it got to storyboards and then changed again when it got to color. And now they change every day. I'm watching it with my family now on D Um, and the more I watch them, the more I sort of extract from each one, you know, the depth of meaning really like, Oh, I see there now that's connect, you know, I see new things in them every time I see them. And I have new favorites every different day. So, um, it's really hard to choose a favorite. I really, really love them all, and for different reasons.
1: Jack, you spoke about the craftsmanship that is there in the animation space through both of your experience in this field. Like, what is the thing that just most impresses you about the craftsmanship? Because you know, when I watch, I have some friends that do animation and illustration. The amount of work that goes into it—it's mind-blowing for some—an image that blows by you in a blink of an eye. Um, And I'm just always just dumbfounded by that. The amount of work that goes into something that moves so quickly. What from that space is something that you just
2: like to tell people? Look at how much work goes into this. To me, it's the drawing. When you're working in 2D, just people's ability to draw. And there's different programs now that animation, 2D animators can use that help with some of the in-betweens and some things like that. But I feel like the craftsmanship that's coming out of Tokyo is still pretty heavily reliant on people who can draw and it blows me away. I've been around it for decades and just people who can draw like volume and anatomy, it just never ceases to amaze me. And not on this project, but about four years ago, I was able to be in Tokyo and visit some of a couple of studios. And just seeing that a lot of the way they draw is still on paper. And, you know, it's very handcrafted still, you know, they're putting all their sheets in a folder every day for the animation director to review and erase and draw on top of it's just these people are I mean, obviously, they're artists, but they're really, truly artisans. It should never be minimized how much work it is. And you're right. People don't understand that,
5: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> what it yeah. takes to, to create one of these.
5: Totally. Uh, some of the studio, I think it's the Jenna Studio and the Studio Color Radio, they they uh, post them side by side. Uh, comparison movie on Twitter so you can see the pencil drawing animation and the final animation and it's just a you know mind-blowing like oh my (laughs) god like (laughs) like how can you make that lops like the furry ear and all the hairs move so beautifully (laughs) even in the pencil drawing and then the end like final frame is like it's, of course, it's beautiful, but it's just so wonderful to watch. And I think the passion of, of, of each creator has is like really huge. And I think there's really hugely still believe in the what can anime do in terms of the storytelling and expression. And I think that's really stands out in Japanese anime. I guess
2: I could watch the hair from yes, Kara, Kara and Am's. Bangs over their faces in the twins forever. I just sometimes I can't even watch the story. I'm just staring at it because there's something just mesmerizing and beautiful about it. Um, You know what is also interesting is the studios had to adjust and do this Mm. during COVID. And so many of their artists were working at home. And one story I heard is they had to send runners by the animators homes every night to pick up their drawings. And so the animator would leave it downstairs on their porch or in their laundry room. And the runner would come by every night to grab their drawings, which I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) It's really amazing that they were able to get this done over through COVID.
1: We've seen that, uh, particularly the Ronin from the first episode of The Duel. It's going to be the subject of novelization. Of course, Star Wars is is no stranger to characters from their animation side crossing over into the live-action side. We recently saw uh, the much-beloved Ahsoka Tano uh, in The Mandalorian. I don't know if you could break news or if you would even know, but it seems like that would be a possibility, right? If fans really gravitate towards a particular character... Could it happen? Could we see one of these characters cross over?
2: Never say never is my answer (laughs) to that because I'm with you that some of these characters feel like they could fit right perfectly into the canon, you know, and you you want to see them again. You want to see what their journey has led to and who they aligned with. And, you know, so I absolutely hope so. I mean, I'm sure when George and Dave Filoni made up Ahsoka 10 years ago, they had no idea, right? So I, yeah. things take on a life of their own.
1: Kanago, if any of these characters could cross over, who would you like to see do it?
5: I love to see, like, a uh, Tatooine Rhapsody's band, the Star Waver, just, like, having <laughs> yeah. concert in different <laughs> bar in different planets. Like, they can easily be in background. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, personally, it doesn't have to be, like, they doesn't have to be, like, a very successful band in the galaxy. But even though they still, are, like, doing the rocks, <laughs> you know, after five, ten years... <laughs>
2: That's
5: so funny. I'd love to see them at Galaxy's Edge. Yes. I
1: had a a pitch to uh, one of our other guests, uh, Alex, who has a a very popular YouTube uh, channel where he basically talks about Star Wars, Star Wars lore Explains Star. It's called Star Wars Explains. Uh, And it's, you know, uh, of course, the Max Rebo Band later was uh, at Jabba's Palace playing for the assembled guests there day in, day out. Uh, My pitch to him was what if Star Waver was Jabba's entry into the music business? That's how he got the bug and how he started uh, loving music. That's my pitch anyway. Um, (laughs) I I love it. Are we going to see a Star Wars vision season two at some point?
2: You know, I don't think we've seen the last of Star Wars visions. I think it's a great way to see different expressions of Star Wars. And so my hope is that this is definitely not the last.
1: Jackie, Kanako, thank you for joining
2: us. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. I love your passion. Thank you so much.
1: A big fan of it.
2: Up next, the end game.
1: Rosie, we are in the end game now. And this week we are playing Deadly Games. The question is this, which murder game setup? right so which murder game setup? be it squid game death race the purge old school the most dangerous game Do you want to get divergent on us you could do that maze runner <laughs> lord of the flies which of these would you excel at would you pick to be placed in and why hmm. well
3: squid games off battle royale's off the purge seems vaguely appealing to me because I could just potentially lock myself in my house. Right, the and purge, you don't for it. have to do anything. You could just like. Also, the purge, I could do like, I could like cancel student loans or something. Well, I mean, everything's illegal. Everything's legal. I could do some cool like venom hacking. You know, yeah. I could.
1: I would pull the, you know, uh, I would maybe, pull those uh, uh, do not remove tags off my mattresses. I would do that like on. <laughs> Fine. <Finally>. Yeah. <laughs>
3: I, I think I would actually pick Running Man, though, just because I love that movie and I love the aesthetic. And I think that it's so kind of like bootleg that I'd probably be okay. It's like just electrocute some guys, like go in a cool weird car through a tunnel, wear a jumpsuit, like make friends with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'd, I'd probably be fine in in, the, in Running Man, I think.
1: There's uh there's a line in that movie delivered by uh, the great Arnold Schwarzenegger with a line reading that is just unbelievable. Unreal, and I'm going to quote it for you now. I hope you leave enough room for my fist because I'm the rabbit in your smoke and break your goddamn spine!
3: Yeah, it's iconic, and he's, like, when he stabs the guy when he's signing the contract. I love that era of Arnie, like, Running Man, uh Total Recall. Killian, I really, I, here's your sub-zero. The... Now just plain <laughs> zero. <laughs> zero, yeah. That's the good stuff. I think I could survive an 80s game show era where it's a little bit more janky what about you I'm gonna go with eh,
1: man it's like a lot of killing and I'm not sure how well I would do with killing but I think PETA I'm gonna steal one from PETA he has shown us the way (laughs) I think if I went Hunger Games and I painted myself like a Mm. rock and just lay there honestly like a cow I love that he did very, very well by doing yeah, that. And, and I think I would, I think I would do that as well. I would just paint myself like a rock and lay down.
3: And when you said I just make some nice bread. <laughs> delicious some deli- bread. Who doesn't love delicious it? Delicious bread. Smell like bread.
1: <laughs> That's it for the endgame. Let us know whether you agree or couldn't disagree more. Share your answers at hashtag XRV. Endgame. Big thanks to Jackie Lopez, to Kanako Shirasaki. Uh, And, of course, Rosie Knight for joining us on another episode of X-Ray Vision. Rosie, where can people find your stuff? Plug it.
3: Uh, Yeah, you can find me at Nerdist, IGN, A Den of Geek, all kinds of different cool places when we write about comics, uh, what to watch. There's a bunch of different stuff out there. And uh, I'm on Instagram at Rosie Marks, where I sometimes review movies and always shout out this podcast. Ooh, thank you.
1: (laughs) Join us each week on Wednesday for your weekly dose of the deepest dives and honest takes next week. We'll be moving across the comic style to talk about the DC fandom and all the announcements coming out of the big old DC fandom. If you want to learn more about some of the shows, movies, comics, pop culture that we explore each episode, check out our listener's guide to all things Ray Vision in the show notes or on your website. There are six rounds in the Squid Game, but only five stars. So if you like this show, give us the five star or else. Goodbye. X-ray Vision is a crooked media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Salt Rubin. It's EP'd by me, Jason Concepcion, and Sandy Gerard. Caroline Reston and Carlton Gillespie are our consulting producers, and our editing and sound design is by Sarah Givelaska, SGL. And the folks at Chapter Four, thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. Goodbye! Want to make mom's day?